0: the greatest thing in the world the defence this LibriVox recording is in the public domain the greatest thing in the world and other addresses by henry drummond the defence now i have a closing sentence or two to add about paul's reason for singling out love as the supreme possession it is a very remarkable reason in a single word it is this it lasts love argues paul never faileth then he begins again one of his marvelous lists of the great things of the day and exposes them one by one he runs over the things that men thought were going to last and shows that they are all fleeting temporary and passing away whether there be prophecies they shall fail it was a mother's ambition for her boy in those days that he should become a prophet. For hundreds of years God had never spoken by means of any prophet, and at that time the prophet was greater than the king. Men waited wistfully for another messenger to come, and hung upon his lips when he appeared, as upon the very voice of God. Paul says, "'Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail,' this book is full of prophecies one by one they have failed that is have been fulfilled their work is finished they have nothing more to do now in the world except to feed a devout man's faith then paul talks about tongues that was another thing that was greatly coveted whether there be tongues they shall cease as we all know Many, many centuries have passed since tongues have been known in this world. They have ceased. Take it in any sense you like. Take it, for illustration merely, as languages in general, a sense which was not in Paul's mind at all, and which, though it cannot give us the specific lesson, will point the general truth. Consider the words in which these chapters were written. Greek. It has gone. Take the Latin, the other great tongue of those days. It ceased long ago. Look at the Indian language. It is ceasing. The language of Wales, of Ireland, of the Scottish Highlands is dying before our eyes. The most popular book in the English tongue at the present time, except the Bible, is one of Dickens' works, his Pickwick Papers. It is largely written in the language of london street life and experts assure us that in fifty years it will be unintelligible to the average english reader paul goes farther and with even greater boldness adds whether there be knowledge it shall vanish away the wisdom of the ancients where is it it is wholly gone a schoolboy today knows more than sir isaac newton knew his knowledge has vanished away you put yesterday's paper in the fire its knowledge has vanished away you buy the old editions of the great encyclopedias for a few pence their knowledge has vanished away Look how the coach has been superseded by the use of steam, look how electricity has superseded that, and swept a hundred almost new inventions into oblivion. One of the greatest living authorities, Sir William Thompson, said the other day, The steam engine is passing away. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. At every workshop you will see in the back yard a heap of old iron, a few wheels, a few levers, a few cranks, broken and eaten with rust. Twenty years ago, that was the pride of the city. Men flocked in from the country to see the great invention. Now it is superseded. Its day is done. And all the boasted science and philosophy of this day will soon be old. But yesterday— in the university of edinburgh the greatest figure in the faculty was sir james simpson the discoverer of chloroform the other day his successor and nephew professor simpson was asked by the librarian of the university to go to the library and pick out the books on his subject that were no longer needed and his reply to the librarian was this take every textbook that is more than ten years old and put it down in the cellar. Sir James Simpson was a great authority only a few years ago. Men came from all parts of the earth to consult him and almost the whole teaching of that time is consigned by the science of today to oblivion. And in every branch of science it is the same. Now we know in part. We see through a glass, darkly. Can you tell me anything that is going to last? Many things Paul did not condescend to name. He did not mention money, fortune, fame, but he picked out the great things of his time, the things the best men thought had something in them, and brushed them peremptorily aside. Paul had no charge against these things in themselves. All he said about them was that they would not last. They were great things, but not supreme things. There were things beyond them. What we are stretches past what we do, beyond what we possess. Many things that men denounce as sins are not sins, but they are temporary, and that is a favorite argument of the new testament john says of the world not that it is wrong but simply that it passeth away there is a great deal in the world that is delightful and beautiful there is a great deal in it that is great and engrossing but it will not last all that is in the world the lust of the eye the lust of the flesh and the pride of life are but for a little while. Love not the world, therefore. Nothing that it contains is worth the life and consecration of an immortal soul. The immortal soul must give itself to something that is immortal. And the only immortal things are these. Now abideth faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. Some think the time may come when two of these three things will also pass away, faith into sight and hope into fruition. Paul does not say so. We know but little now about the conditions of the life that is to come, but what is certain is that love must last. God, the eternal God, is love. Covet, therefore, that everlasting gift, that one thing which is certain is going to stand, that one coinage which will be current in the universe when all the other coinages of all the nations of the world shall be useless and unhonored. You will give yourselves to many things. Give yourselves first to love. Hold things in their proportion. Hold things in their proportion. Let at least the first great object of our lives be to achieve the character defended in these words, the character, and that is the character of Christ, which is built around love. I have said this thing is eternal. Did you notice how continually John associates love and faith with eternal life? I was not told when I was a boy that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should have everlasting life. What I was told, I remember, was that God so loved the world that, if I trusted in him, I was to have a thing called peace, or I was to have rest, or I was to have joy, or I was to have safety. But I had to find out for myself that whosoever trusteth in him, that is, whosoever loveth him, for trust is only the avenue to love, hath everlasting life. The gospel offers a man life. Never offer men a thimble full of gospel. Do not offer them merely joy, or merely peace, or merely rest, or merely safety. Tell them how Christ came to give men a more abundant life than they have, a life abundant in love, and therefore abundant in salvation for themselves, and large in enterprise for the alleviation and redemption of the world. Then only can the gospel take hold of the whole of a man, body, soul, and spirit, and give to each part of his nature its exercise and reward. Many of the current Gospels are addressed only to a part of man's nature. They offer peace, not life, faith, not love, justification, not regeneration. And men slip back again from such religion, because it has never really held them. Their nature was not all in it. It offered no deeper and gladder life current than the life that was lived before. Surely it stands to reason that only a fuller love can compete with the love of the world. To love abundantly is to live abundantly, and to love forever is to live forever. Hence eternal life is inextricably bound up with love, we want to live forever for the same reason that we want to live tomorrow. Why do you want to live tomorrow? It is because there is someone who loves you and whom you want to see tomorrow and be with and love back. There is no other reason why we should live on than that we love and are beloved. It is when a man has no one to love him that he commits suicide. So long as he has friends, those who love him, and whom he loves, he will live. Because to live is to love. Be it but the love of a dog, it will keep him in life. But let that go, and he has no contact with life, no reason to live. The energy of life has failed. Eternal life, also, is to know God, and God is love. This is Christ's own definition. Ponder it. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Love must be eternal. It is what God is. On the last analysis, then, love is life. Love never faileth, and life never faileth, so long as there is love. That is the philosophy of what Paul is showing us, the reason why, in the nature of things, love should be the supreme thing, because it is going to last because in the nature of things it is an eternal life. That life is a thing that we are living now, not what we get when we die, that we shall have a poor chance of getting when we die, unless we are living now. No worse fate can befall a man in this world than to live and grow old alone, unloving and unloved. To be lost is to live in an unregenerate condition, loveless and unloved, and to be saved is to love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth already in God, for God is love. Now, I have all but finished. How many of you will join me in reading this chapter once a week for the next three months? A man did that once, and it changed his whole life. Will you do it? It is the greatest thing in the world. You might begin by reading it every day, especially the verses which describe the perfect character. Love suffereth long, and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Get these ingredients into your life then everything that you do is eternal. It is worth doing. It is worth giving time to. No man can become a saint in his sleep, and to fulfill the condition required demands a certain amount of prayer and meditation and time, just as improvement in any direction, bodily or mental, requires preparation and care. Address yourselves to that one thing, at any cost, have this transcendent character exchanged for yours. You will find as you look back upon your life, that the moments that stand out, the moments when you have really lived, are the moments when you have done things in a spirit of love, AS MEMORY SCANTS THE PAST, ABOVE AND BEYOND ALL THE TRANSITORY PLEASURES OF LIFE, THERE LEAP FORWARD THOSE SUPREME HOURS WHEN YOU HAVE BEEN ENABLED TO DO UNNOTICED KINDNESSES TO THOSE ROUND ABOUT YOU, THINGS TOO TRIFLING TO SPEAK ABOUT, BUT WHICH YOU FEEL HAVE ENTERED INTO YOUR ETERNAL LIFE. I HAVE SEEN ALMOST ALL THE BEAUTIFUL THINGS GOD HAS MADE. I have enjoyed almost every pleasure that he has planned for man. And yet, as I look back, I see, standing out above all the life that has gone, four or five short experiences when the love of God reflected itself in some poor imitation, some small act of love of mine. And these seem to be the things which alone, of all one's life, abide. Everything else in our lives is transitory. Every other good is visionary. But the acts of love which no man knows about, or can ever know about, they never fail. In the book of Matthew, where the judgment day is depicted for us in the imagery of one seated upon a throne, and dividing the sheep from the goats, the test of a man then, is not, how have I believed, but how have I loved. The test of religion, the final test of religion, is not religiousness, but love. I say the final test of religion at the great day is not religiousness, but love. Not what I have done, not what I have believed, not what I have achieved, but how I have discharged the common charities of life. Sins of commission in that awful indictment are not even referred to. By what we have not done, by sins of omission, we are judged. It could not be otherwise, for the withholding of love is the negation of the Spirit of Christ, the proof that we never knew him, that for us he lived in vain. It means that he suggested nothing in all our thoughts, that he inspired nothing in all our lives, that we were not once near enough to him to be seized with the spell of his compassion for the world. It means that I lived for myself, I thought for myself, for myself, and none beside, just as if Jesus had never lived, as if he had never died. It is the Son of Man before whom the nations of the world shall be gathered it is in the presence of humanity that we shall be charged and the spectacle itself the mere sight of it will silently judge each one those will be there whom we have met and helped or the unpitied multitude whom we neglected or despised no other witness need be summoned. No other charge than lovelessness shall be preferred. Be not deceived. The words which all of us shall one day hear sound not of theology, but of life, not of churches and saints, but of the hungry and the poor, not of creeds and doctrines, but of shelter and clothing, not of Bibles and prayer books, but of cups of cold water in the name of Christ. Thank God the Christianity of today is coming nearer the world's need. Live to help that on. Thank God men know better, by a hair's breadth, what religion is, what God is, who Christ is, where Christ is. Who is Christ? He who fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the sick. And where is Christ? Where? Whoso shall receive a little child in my name, receiveth me. And who are Christ's? Every one that loveth is born of God. End of the defense. End of the greatest thing mm-hmm. in the world.